Today we are thinking about Psalm 20. Psalm 20 is attributed to David, King David, Israel's most revered king. And indeed, the first five verses are part of a prayer to God by the people or worship leader on behalf of the people for their king, described in verse 6 as God's anointed. Kings as well as priests were anointed on taking office as King Charles will be in his coronation in May. The king was anointed, appointed, called by God to lead his people. As a faithful, godly leader, the king would lead Israel to enjoy and embrace God's kingdom and blessings. But more than that, Israel was to be the vehicle by which all nations, all people, would come to know God and become part of his kingdom. Psalm 100 proclaims, shout for joy to the Lord, all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Perhaps more familiar, we're more familiar with the hymn, all people that on earth do dwell, sing to the Lord with cheerful voice. Him serve with mirth, his praise forth tell. Come ye before him and rejoice. Know that the Lord is God indeed. Without our help he did us make. We are his folk, he doth us feed. And for his sheep he doth us take. One of my favourite hymns, I have to say. The Psalms can encourage us, but also inevitably challenge us, which is no bad thing. Psalm 20 is one of the royal Psalms, and the particular context is a prayer asking God to enable and strengthen the king to give the nation victory as he leads their armies into battle against Israel's many pagan enemies. Eric Lane comments, the early part of David's reign was one of almost continual warfare with the neighbouring nations. But he believed his wars were God's wars and that he could therefore invoke God's aid. He also recruited people to call on God. No doubt there was a first occasion for this, for which this psalm was composed, but it was then placed in the collection of psalms by the director of music and used whenever necessary. Now David, like all of us, was flawed. In a few weeks' time, we'll conclude this series in the Psalms, looking at Psalm 51, which shines a light on King David failing grievously to fulfill his royal responsibilities. Not only does he decline to lead his armies from the front in battle, which was a key aspect of the king's responsibility to the nation, but in fact, while chilling in his palace, he sports Bathsheba, 
whose husband Uriah the Hittite is away fighting at the front, takes a fancy to her, ultimately seduces her, and when he discovers she is pregnant, engineers Uriah's death at the front. Arguably, this shameful episode in David's life serves as a warning of what can happen when our focus turns from God and his call on our lives. We are apt to shirk our responsibilities and instead turn our attention to gratifying our own desires, which can, when taken to extremes, cause carnage in other people's lives. And God's kingdom here on earth shrinks rather than grows. Tom Wright in his book Finding God in the Psalms, Sing, Pray, Live, particularly in the light of Psalms such as 51 comments, humans have sinned, but God will still work through them. Israel has sinned, but God will still use its people to bless the nations. Monarchs have sinned grievously, but God will still use its people, sorry, will still, God still promises to bring the world into subjection under his anointed king. Unless this is sheer folly on God's part, or indeed sheer arrogance on the psalmist's part, This can only mean that these songs are to be sung in the light of God's intended future. Someday, somehow, there will come a time when a Davidic king will be exalted over all the nations and bring justice and peace to the world. And part of the task of that coming king will be somehow to take upon himself not only the role of ruling Israel and the world, but of bringing to its head the long history of failure, human failure, Israel's failure, royal history. The prophets, especially Isaiah, point to this as well. In the first five verses of Psalm 20, the people are praying to God for their king. They pray that the Lord will answer David when he is in distress. They pray that the God of Jacob, who protected Jacob, will similarly protect David. David, when he is leading from the front, will find himself away from home, away from Zion, away from the Ark of the Covenant, the sanctuary where God uniquely was believed to dwell. Again, they pray that God will respond to prayers by sending support and reinforcements, etc., to where they were needed. The people pray that God will remember the past sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and fellowship offerings which David has made and accept these offerings. Making offerings before going into battle seems to have been practiced, but acceptance of these offerings couldn't be taken for granted. In 1 Samuel 13, we read about David's predecessor, King Saul, making various offerings. Sadly for Saul, Sam tells him, you have done a foolish thing. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God. 
the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over all Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, that's David, and appointed him ruler of his people, because you have not kept the Lord's command. The people pray that the king's plans, battle plans, will succeed, but recognize that this is ultimately dependent on God's involvement and God's will. John Goldingay comments, the fourth line recognizes that the king will have to make battle plans. But Proverbs likes to emphasize that it is fine to make plans, but whether they get implemented depends on God. So there's further reason to pray for God to be involved in events. After all, the psalm later notes, it's customary to believe our military hardware decides the result of battles, but in reality, things often work out otherwise. Eugene Peterson in the message for verses 79 of Psalm 20 writes, See those people polishing their chariots and those others grooming their horses. But we are making garlands for God, our God. The chariots will rust. Those horses pull up lame. And we'll be on our feet standing tall. Make the king a winner, God. The day we call, give us your answer. Michael Wilcox commenting on Psalm 20 and 21, which are often taken together. Psalm 21 offers praise to God when he delivers victory and blessings to Israel. He writes, all that world has come to dust. None of today's nations, rulers, or conflicts corresponds to Old Testament Israel, her kings and her wars. There is warfare and warfare in this life. What the world considers a war worth fighting for may well not seem to us. We have it on good authority that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms, Ephesians 6.12. The closer we get to the kind of war that really must be fought, the closer we get to the king who will fight it for us, and to the rest of his people who will pray to that end with us, that will be the time for Psalms 20 and 21. Nevertheless, there are flesh and blood wars going on right now. And we must uh, face that fact. Some folk, again, much, much older than me, can recall Bob Dylan's song, With God on Our Side. The final verse, Oh, my name, it ain't nothing. My age, it means less. The country I come from is called the Midwest. I was taught and brought up there the laws to abide, and that land that I live in has God on its side. 
He, of course, in subsequent verses, reels off many 19th and mostly 20th century conflicts where God has been enlisted on the side of his nation against any other enemy nation. Some of you will have read, either happily or perhaps unhappily, Sunset Song by Louis Grassic Gibbon, set in Aberdeenshire around the time of the First World War. War is declared and the local minister, Reverend Gibbons, delivers his Sunday sermon. And he said that God was sending the Germans for a curse and a plague in the world because of its sins. It had grown wicked and lustful. God's anger was loosed as in the days of Attila. How long it would rage, what deeps of pain their punishments would go, only God and his anger might know. But from the chastisement by blood and fire, the nations might rise anew, Scotland not the least, in its ancient health and humility to tread again the path of grace. This message goes down like a light balloon, leading to a walkout and a near lynching of Reverend Gibbon as he tries to get back to his manse. Funnily enough, by the following Sunday, God, or at least Reverend Gibbon, has clearly changed his mind. For the next Sabbath day, when another great crowd came down to the kirk to hear him preach, they got all the patriotism they could wish for. The minister said that the Kaiser was the Antichrist, and until this foul evil had been swept from the earth, there could be neither peace nor progress again. And he gave out to him then, onward Christian soldiers it was, and his own great bull's voice led the singing. He had fair become a patriot, and it seemed he thought the Germans real bad. Let's consider Jesus' teaching in today's gospel passage, Matthew 5, 38-40, which is part of the Sermon on the Mount. The NIV Bible, which we use, entitles the two sections, An Eye for an Eye and Love for Enemies, while the message entitles the whole passage, Love for Enemies. Now consider the change of emphasis between Psalm 20 and Jesus' preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Israel at this point is not in a good place, and God doesn't appear to be on their side in many ways. Tom Wright again, not only has Israel in Jesus' day got many enemies, pagan nations who have overrun the land and made the people subject to harsh rules and taxes, there are just as many dangers within as movements of national resistance spring up, fueled by the anger at increasing injustice and wickedness. And within that, again, the divisions within Jewish society are becoming more marked, with a few becoming very rich and the majority being poor, some very poor. These were all pressing issues for the people listening to Jesus. How did this kingdom message apply to them? How can it apply to us today? Jesus offers a new sort of justice, a creative, healing, restorative justice. 
The old justice found in the Bible was designed to prevent revenge running away from itself. Better an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth than an escalating feud with each side getting worse than the other. But Jesus goes one better still. Better no vengeance at all, but rather a creative way forward, reflecting the astonishing, patient love of God himself, who wants Israel to shine his light into the world so that all the people will see that he is the one true God and that his deepest nature is overflowing love. No other God encourages people to behave like that. Perhaps our initial reaction to this kind of teaching is to regard it as completely idealistic and frankly unnatural. In some respects, that's absolutely the case. Our basic human nature doesn't instinctively cause us to join in a chorus of kumbaya while somebody loves bricks at us. We instinctively want to gather bigger boulders and lob them back and then smash our guitars over their heads. Never take on the praise group, by the way. <laughs> you've, heard the, you've heard the old joke, and sometimes it's not a joke. What's the difference between an organist and a terrorist? You can negotiate with a terrorist. For some reason, we don't, we don't have an organist anymore. I don't know if there's a connection. Anyway, where was I? <laughs> but Jesus doesn't teach us that we simply accept evil. On the contrary, it's because evil must be overcome that Jesus took on evil head on. He took the bullets. He took the hit at Calvary and ultimately overcame evil. But it's still in its death throes in our world today. Paul concludes his first letter to the Thessalonians as follows. Get along among yourself, each of you doing your part. Be patient with each person, attentive to individual needs. And be careful that when you get on each other's nerves, you don't snap at each other. Look for the best in each other. And always do your best to bring it out. Be cheerful no matter what. Pray all the time. Thank God no matter what happens. This is the way God wants you to live. Don't suppress the spirit and don't stifle those who have a word from the master. On the other hand, don't be gullible. Check out everything and keep only what's good. Throw out anything tainted with evil. May God himself, the God who makes everything holy and whole, put you together, soul, spirit, and body, and keep you fit 
for the coming of our master, Christ Jesus. The one who called you is completely dependable. Completely dependable. If he said it, he'll do it. A year on from the Russian invasion of Ukraine, politicians in the West are agonizing on how to respond to the Russian incursion in terms of how to support Ukraine with military hardware, but at the same time not exacerbating the situation to the point where we have an all-out war spreading across Europe. You may have seen the series on Vladimir Putin and the various um, West and the various Western leaders and their diplomatic efforts both before and in the wake of the invasion of Crimea in particular. One thing is clear, no simple, straightforward, long-term peace strategy currently exists. And surely we must seek to pray for our leaders that this can be achieved sooner rather than later. The former Archbishop of Canterbury, Donald Coggan, in his commentary on Psalm 20 urges, more prayer, less criticism, that is the way to a truly successful government. Currently, as I understand it, the Russian Orthodox Church, citing various historical events, seems to be fulfilling her patriotic duty to Vladimir Putin by supporting his invasion of Ukraine, a stance which has been criticised by, among others, another former Archbishop of Canterbury, Rowan Williams. Let's go for a hat-trick of Archbishops. Robert Runsey served as Archbishop of Canterbury from 1979 to 1991, a period which included the Falklands War. In a Guardian obituary on the 12th of July 2000, we read this. A scholarship took Runsey to Oxford to read classics, where his time was interrupted by war service. He volunteered to join a Scottish regiment and was startled to be recruited as officer material for the Scots Guards. It proved to be a significant part of his education. In later years, Runsey used to say he was probably the first Archbishop of Canterbury since Thomas Becket to have been into battle. The 3rd Battalion of the Scots Guards landed at Normandy soon after D-Day and fought their way to the Baltic. En route, Runsey won the Military Cross for wiping out a German gun emplacement while under fire. For a short honeymoon period that had delighted the media that this pig-keeping ex-tank commander archbishop should officiate at a royal wedding, welcome the Pope to Canterbury and deploy Terry Waite to rescue hostages. But the dramatic change came when he preached penitence and reconciliation at the service of thanksgiving after the Falklands War instead of the triumphalism the press and politicians looked for. 
Runcie reminded the congregation that war was a terrible thing and people are mourning on both sides of the conflict. From then on, all his considerable achievements were set against a background of a tabloid venom. His survival was a triumph of intelligence, integrity and courage. Intelligence, integrity and courage, that's not a bad epitaph. These are some of the qualities that Christ calls us to display. The call of Christ our King, our Shepherd, requires these qualities and more. We need to attune as best we can our ears, hearts, minds, lives to help us discern his voice, his call, his lead in our lives. We won't always get it right. We'll stumble. We'll sometimes fall. We'll take a wrong turning. But Jesus, who has given his all for you and me, assures us, I am the good shepherd. Not any old shepherd, the good shepherd, God's shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Amen. Mm -hmm.